Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Uh, my name is Todd Bankler. I'm one of the entrusted teachers here at Appamata. And um, our teacher's role is basically just to help facilitate your practice and, and support you along the way. And help with, you, with the offerings here that we give every week. So it's my pleasure to do that today. Uh, during the first three sittings, we offer practice discussion, which is just a chance to meet with a teacher and discuss what's coming up in your practice, what you're noticing, um, what you're struggling with, and maybe where you're stuck. So just a little reminder that that's available um, every Sunday and most mornings um, when they're sitting and one of the uh, teachers or mentors present. So this morning, I wanted to bring to you a little Dharma talk, not done by me, but uh, spliced together with different bits from uh, Blanche Hartman, who was Flint's primary teacher at San Francisco Zen Center. Blanche's Zen name was Zenkai, which means inconceivable joy. So today I'd like to talk to you about inconceivable joy and Buddhist intention. It's often good to talk about what our intent is here. You know, why are we here? Um, this is a bit unusual. There's not many people who come, you know, and sit in stillness and silence, uh, walk around in a slow circle at a snail's pace in between sittings, you know, do other otherworldly things. So why is it we're doing this? It's good to, to chat about it. And I want to leave time to have open discussion here at the end. So picking up near the end of the compilation of talks from Blanche's book, there's a chapter on constant thinking, which I'm going to skip through to the middle, but just know that the, um, the reason she's speaking is she was asked a question by one of the students about, you know, Buddhist thought and do Buddhists think. <laughs> yeah, it seems ridiculous, right? <laughs> you know, I would hear the question sometimes, do Buddhists think? But it's an extremely common question, you know. What do you do with thought? You know, do, we, do we try to stop thinking or not? The answer is no, by the way, but I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> A Buddhist intention is to free beings from suffering and distress. So he or she clearly observes which actions of body, speech, and mind lead to peace and happiness, and which lead to misery and teaches others what he or she has discovered. It is up to us, then, to train ourselves to relinquish thinking that leads to suffering and to cultivate thinking that leads to happiness. So this is our intention. A Buddhist intention is to free beings from suffering and distress. And this is what the Shakyamuni Buddha, historical Buddha, spent his entire life after his awakening doing, was teaching beings about suffering and distress. 
and how to free themselves from suffering and distress. And it's interesting that Blanche goes right from this intention and talks about how. He or she clearly observes which actions of body, speech, and mind lead to peace and happiness. So if your intent is to free beings from suffering and desire and distress, one should clearly observe which actions of body, speech, and mind lead to peace and happiness, and which lead to misery. And then teach others what you discover. That's what the Buddha did. It is up to us to train ourselves to relinquish thinking that leads to suffering and to cultivate thinking that leads to happiness. So there's an intention and there's a training. We often talk about intention or our way, right, as kind of a, a beacon, a guiding principle. It's a directionality, right? It's just an orienting function of kind of where we're going. It doesn't tell you which step to take, right? So you have to have both. We have to have that orienting beacon on where we're going. But then we've got to get down to the earth about what do we do now? The very first quote on the book before it begins from Blanche, if we're open to embracing the surprises as they arise, then there will be inconceivable joy. If we fuss and fume and say, this isn't what I expected, then there will be inconceivable misery. Just to welcome your life as it arrives moment after moment, to meet it as fully as you can, being as open to it as you can, being as ready for whatever arises as you can, and meeting it wholeheartedly. This is renunciation. This is leaving behind all your preferences, all your ideas and notions and schemes, just meeting life as it is. Sounds simple. And it's a good orienting conceptual framework of what we think we're doing. And it's good to have these conceptual frameworks, knowing that they're provisional and that they aren't actually the truth, but they provide us some direction and some guidance for our training. If we're open to embracing the surprises as they arise, there will be inconceivable joy. If we fuss and fume and say, this isn't what I expected, then there'll be inconceivable misery. Just to meet your life as it arises moment after moment. Just, just meeting life, life as it is. But often we struggle with that, you know, our normal human way is to explain, predict, and control. 
if we do meet life that is as it is, it's only so we can explain what the heck's going on and what do I do about it, right? <laughs> we, we skip over that step really fast. Oh my God, what's happening? I need to take care of this, right? We want to manipulate and control. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, that seems to be our, one of our basic activities of human nature. It's to manipulate and control our environment. We've, we're pretty good at it. We've accomplished a lot. So it's no wonder that we fall into that by default, that we're not okay with life as it is. But often this can be the second arrow in the Buddhist story of the first arrow of suffering and the second arrow of um, additional unnecessary suffering that we bring into situations. Disease, death, shock happens in our environment. That's the first arrow. That's the suffering you can't get away from. But the second arrow is often our opinions about it and our fussing and fuming about it. If we fuss and fume and say, this isn't what I expected, then there will be inconceivable misery. Now, often Buddhists get a bad rap as um, pacifists and not doing anything, not taking an action. This is a, an oft, uh, a common misunderstanding because we emphasize meeting life as it is because we emphasize um, not quickly jumping to the explain, predict, and control. Um, people take that to mean you aren't going to take action. And that's not our way. Our way is just not to rush. Our way is not to be led blindly by our tendencies, karma, and habit. And to put emphasis on what's actually happening, on not firing the second arrow, and letting the action that's required arise from a place of spaciousness and not reactive habits. This is renunciation. She's talking about meeting life as it is. This is renunciation. This is leaving behind all your preferences, all your ideas and notions and schemes. Just meeting life as it is. You know, one of the most famous chants we read here every week starts the great way isn't difficult. Just forget about your preferences. Joko used to say that she had a definition of joy. Joy is what's happening now, minus our opinions about it. <laughs> Joy is what's happening now, minus our opinions about it. And what she's pointing at is that the ground of the present moment, the backdrop of each experience is joy. 
But often when we start to judge it, prefer it, have aversion to it, we no longer see the joy. We see their preference for what's happening now or our aversion to what's happening now. The joy is always available. If you, if you open yourself to it and if you allow yourself not to be distracted by your preferences, often we'll find the joy in the situation. So in each moment, we have everything we need. We have the present moment, we have the input, we have our reactions to it. We have the ability with time to choose our intention and choose our awareness. We have everything we need. From chapter 11, there's nothing missing. All the teachers I know have emphasized that we practice for the sake of practice, just to express and actualize our intrinsic Buddha nature for the benefit of all beings. There is nothing we need to get that is not already right here, right now, in this very body and mind as it is. Blanche talks for a minute about how Suzuki Roshi would often say things like this, that you're perfect as you are. You have everything you need. You're already complete. Just to be alive is enough. And Blanche says she spent a lot of time thinking she was the sole exception to these things. <laughs> but as she continued to practice and talk with other students, <clears throat> She found that many people share the conditioning that leads us to think there's something wrong with us. If we could only get, if we could only do, if we could only be something more, then we would be all right. It's easy for us to get the idea that there's something wrong with us and hard to let go of that and just appreciate this life as it is as a gift. In fact, not only is life a gift and practice a gift, everything we have, without exception, has come to us through the kindness of others. This is the curative fantasy that Barry Maggi talks about. So Barry Maggi is one of jo Joko's teachers who's a psychoanalyst in New York. The Ordinary Mind Zendo in New York, if you want to look him up. And he talks about curative fantasies, the secret fantasies we have in our practice about why we're here, what we're going to get, what's going to make us feel okay, what's going to make us feel like that missing piece has been filled. And you can hear it here in Blanche's words, try for a minute to fill in this blank for yourself. If I could only get, 
if my practice were better and I could do It's very hard for us to give up these fantasies that something's going to make it okay. Something's going to make us okay. But rather than find the thing that's going to do it, we need to turn our light inward and start questioning, why do we think this is not it? And if you're successful with that, you'll probably find whatever answer it was was planted a long time ago before you were conscious of it. But Joko's definition of joy is what's actually happening now, minus our opinions of it. Which tells us everything can be joy if we let it. Again, a Buddhist intention is to free beings from suffering and distress. So, he or she clearly observes which actions of body, speech, and mind lead to peace and happiness, and which lead to misery, and teaches other, I'm sorry, leads to misery, and then teaches others what he or she has discovered. It is up to us, then, to train ourselves to relinquish thinking that leads to suffering, and cultivate thinking that leads to happiness. In the Dhammapada, Shakyamuni Buddha teaches, all experiences, let me start, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows, as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows, like a never departing shadow. Quote, he abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me, Unquote. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. Quote, she abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. Unquote. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. So our effort in Zazen is to observe our own thinking and to notice any habitual thought patterns. For example, how often first person pronouns, I, me, mine, show up. Or we might notice a habitual tendency of self towards self-deprecation or self-aggrandizement or a tendency to make judgments about others then we can observe whether any of these habitual thought patterns results in peace or stress. Has anyone here ever noticed what they're thinking about? You know, something that happened to them and notice how it's making them feel in their body? 
you've seen that those two things are linked, right? As soon as we notice a stressful thought, such as greed, grasping, craving, envy, aversion, ill will, anger, fear, hatred, or delusion, we can train ourselves to recognize it as unwholesome and let it go. As soon as we notice a wholesome thought, such as connection, love, kindness, compassion, empathic joy, equanimity, gratefulness, generosity, enthusiasm, or devotion, we can train ourselves to recognize it as wholesome and cultivated. As we observe our mind at work, notice that it isn't what comes up, but how we think about it that makes all the difference for ourselves and all beings. I invite your questions or comments or reflections about any of that, any of it that resonates with you or any of that you're stuck on and want to dispute. All are welcome. Anne. So it seems to me there's two seemingly separate threads and this talk in Blanche's words that you're cultivating one thing and not cultivating something else. But is that life as it is? What if anger arises? Am I actually taking some mental action to not cultivate the anger, or am I allowing this to arise? Yeah, it's a very tricky little gray area that looks, that looks like it's um, mutually exclusive, right? It looks like you do one or the other. I know we were just talking about this the other day, so I know I'm repeating it some of it for you, but since there are other people here, you know, <clears throat> life as it is, what actually is happening, by definition, as soon as you notice it, it's too late, right? Once you've noticed what's actually happening, you have no choice but to accept it because that's what already is. Once you've noticed it, you notice it because it was already actually happening. The bodhisattva path is to accept the present moment, to welcome every present moment that comes in as life as it is first. Make sure you can feel that in your bones. And of course, you may have to step out of the way. A bus may be coming, <laughs> right? They aren't mutually exclusive, but what we get to train on this bodhisattva path is we choose how to spend our energy. We choose how to use our awareness, just like in Zazen. You can focus on the grocery list and your spinning thoughts, or you can focus on your breath, 
you can focus on your posture, right? Some, some other physical training. And as Joke always said, you get good at what you practice. If you practice spinning around in your head for 30 minutes at a time, that's what you're training. What we're suggesting is training to put your energy into the present moment and not your ideas and your preferences of it, which is what we do in Zazen. And so when one notices they're angry, Usually it's a good idea to, to pause and examine the physical world of how does this anger manifest? How does my chest feel? How's my heart rate, my breathing, my blood pressure? What spinning or repetitive thoughts am I having? And this kind of training helps us to become intimate with how we interpret our world with our own stories and belief systems. And that's a good practice in itself. And if we're aware and awake and, and not triggered so that we can choose what we do next in the next moment, this is where we choose what we want to energize. Do I want to, do I want to blend with the story and tell myself again why I was wronged and why I'm righteous and why I should feel this anger and continue to energize it? Or should I take this moment to try and understand that you know, actions of body, speech, and mind that result from angry thinking have a particular impact on our nervous system, on our environment, and on the people around us, and maybe choose another way in the next moment. So they aren't mutually exclusive. We accept life as it is. We accept the fact that we have a particular conditioned response and we choose what's next. Joel. Joel. Uh, before I let Joe speak, yes, I, I will unmute you, Joe, sorry. Uh, Joanna has a question. She has no voice today and she was asking what was the title of the book? Uh, you're right today. Yes. Hi, Joan. This is um, Seeds for a Boundless Life, which you probably can't see that far away, but it's the compilations of talks from uh, Zenkai Blanche Hartman, I think put together by her students about the, around the time of her passing. So it's called Seeds for a Boundless Life, Zen Teachings from the Heart. Thank you so much. And we have Joel. Good morning, and, and thank you so much for this talk, Todd. Um, it, it happens that um, I was rereading an email from, um, uh, from Peg earlier today before, the, before I joined in, and, um, and that, uh, I don't know if everybody saw it. It, it, it's advice on breaking up habitual patterns uh, uh, from Peg, the title is called Welcoming the New Year, and it was sent on Sunday, the, the 1st of January, so a week ago. 
Um, and um, there's, there's a section in it which speaks to the question, which I would say amplifies your response to the question from Anne. Um, in the, so Peg offers a, a series of uh, prompts for breaking up habitual reactions to things and take, you know, taking a chance to step back, turn your light within, and, and do the things that you were quoting from, from uh, Blanche so well. Uh, but uh, if I may, I want to read a couple of paragraphs from the email from, from Peg, because I think it really uh, speaks to what you're talking about. Uh, she's, she describes various things from uh, impulse regulation to proactive appreciation to contentment, uh, investigating equanimity, and inquiry into anger. She said, anger comes in so many flavors, some subtle like a cool silence, some explosive like hot fury, a bit of annoyance, a flaring temper, a fixed sense of I'm right and they are wrong, a lukewarm apology, a moment of advice or shaming. It's a primal emotion, poorly understood, and even in a tiny dose, and even a tiny dose of it can poison a relationship built up over years. And yet it seems so great to be able to act on anger, filling us with energy and a sense of power, gratifying our righteous, reasonable expectations. The expectations others inexplicably keep failing to satisfy. And occasionally anger is appropriate in response to injustice or cruelty. But we make very crude, ineffectual responses to this kind of anger, don't we? So let's discover more about the particular ways that anger arises, expresses, and ends, specifically in you. Step one, as you go about your day, notice moments of minor anger, irritation, annoyance, exasperation, and so on. Why are we not practicing with fury or rage at the start? How many are there? Don't count, just check in. A few, a lot, many. Step two, observe. How do you do what you think of as anger? Start with what you experience in your body, the clenched jaw, the heat rising in your face, or whatever shows up for you. What happens? Don't get excited. Do this micro practice, maybe once or twice a week. Step three, reflect. What do I really want here? Maybe it's to never drop anything accidentally or for the other person to at least appreciate you. Then ask, who do I want to be in this situation? So I'm sorry, that was longer than I intended to read, but uh, I, I think it's really great. And, and again, it, it, it was awfully good advice for me to get this week. Um, and I, I really appreciated it. And uh, I think it, it just really fits with what you're talking about, Todd. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. <laughs> had some hands up there and go ahead and oh, um, Yeah, this is a, a sort of set of ideas that I've try, been trying to think about a lot lately. Um, I certainly noticed that when I try to avoid getting hooked by uh, anger, judgment, getting into that sort of reactive mind state in the moment, it's sometimes a lot harder to not do that in practice than in, you know, abstract conception. Has anyone else noticed that, that it's harder <laughs> to actually execute, especially with anger? Yes. Yeah. That one's the most difficult. Yeah, I mean, my, my experience is that even if I let myself kind of 
get carried away by some of those thought patterns just for like a moment, it becomes so much harder to take a step back, try to create space for maybe some other emotions or other ways to think about what's going on in the situation to not get hooked by judgment, so to speak. Um, so I've been trying to work on different methods of avoiding that, that initial hook. And uh, one which I've been trying to cultivate with more or less success at times is uh, humor and trying to use that as sort of like a, almost a lens to view whatever particular situation I'm in in the moment to, you know, maybe get a little internal chuckle at perhaps how ridiculous I think a situation is, which then for me at least really helps in creating space for things like compassion and patience and uh, other more what I would consider positive ways of dealing with the situation that are not going to like create that sort of internal storm and all those negative feelings. Uh, but again, it's, uh, it's much harder to do in practice than the conception. But if anybody else has any other tips or tricks for those situations, I'd love to hear them. Well, that's good. I think you're talking exactly about what, what we were mentioning, and that's trying to choose when you're, when you're lucky enough to be awake and aware enough to understand what's happening with yourself and your reaction, which is why we practice to begin with, starting to make that space. Um, you choose what you energize and how, and how you respond to it, right? and bringing some levity to it, or something that breaks the spell of the angry identification Sounds like a good thing. Often I tell people that, you know, in this stream of consciousness that we're always uh, in jeopardy of getting swept away with, you know, and dancing with and identifying with our own, our own stream of consciousness, the little, um, you know, roots on the shoreline, the things that we can hold on to to avoid getting swept away completely are often what's the physical world, what's physically happening now, that's how you hold on to the present moment and don't get carried downstream with your conceptual ideas about right, wrong, preference or not. In those moments, what I would say is in those moments, you can find something in the physical world, your breath, what you're hearing, the color of the light in the room, right? the feet, the, how much your weight of your seat on the chair, Right. These things will help you stay rooted in what's actually happening and um, less reactive to your ideas about it. Thank you. Susan? Hi. Um, I have a scenario, something that I uh, am dealing with now. And it involves a family member who had to unexpectedly go into the hospital for something minor. And she's okay. But um, she has asked me to um, take care of a couple of things in her apartment. But her apartment is disgusting. And the tasks involve things that I find disgusting. Changing out dirty kitty litter taking out garbage that's been sitting for a long time and is kind of rotting. And so, and I'll do these things, but I'm struggling with my um, stance towards it. <laughs> so I'm wondering how the things you've talked about, you know, how might I think about that this, this, this task I have to do in light of 
right. these ideas. So question, are you considering not doing the task? No. That's what I thought. <laughs> so next question, why do you continue to think this then? Right. That I should do it? No. Why do you continue to dance with the objections when you've uh, already decided you're not going to change your mind? Because I find the whole situation physically disgusting. Right. We often talk about kind of magnanimous or grandmotherly mind, right? In Zen, that's one of the one of the states of mind that we talk about, and that's bringing that kind, loving gentleness that wants the best for others, right? That wants to free them from suffering, like the bodhisattva vow in our intention to liberate all beings from suffering. And as Barry Magid says, the first thing you got to remember is, that, is it's not all beings minus one. It's not everybody but me, right? You have to want that for yourself as well which is you know, something I hope you have. But when you do, in those moments, you can ask yourself, what do I want for myself? From that grandmotherly mind, from that magnanimous mind, you know, myself, my child part, what do I want for myself? If I'm doing this task anyway, do I want the pain and suffering and what it does to my nervous system to carry the anger with me through the dirty apartment? Or do I want to find the ease and peace in the task that I already decided I was gonna do anyway? I, I think I'm struggling a bit with what ease and peace might look like in this situation. And I will say like the, the tiny opening that I have into what you're saying is that I know that taking care of the kitty litter will help this family member feel good. Mm -hmm. She's worried about her cats. And so I can help, I can, I, and I can say to her, I will take care of that for you. And that's the little piece that <coughs> hopefully gave her a little bit of peace, two different uses of the word peace. Um, but it's, the only thing for me, I guess, is it's kind of resignation. Like, okay, I can make it quick. It'll be half an hour of something that I'll find really unpleasant, but I'll do it because it needs to be done. That's, I can't get much further than that. <laughs> so, yeah, I would just, I would carry the question with me. What do I want for myself in this moment? And when I'm doing that, what do I want for myself? Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> give, it give it a try, it'll be a little experiment. You can report back from the field. Yeah, um, Irma. We have Irma. Um. Okay, can you guys hear me? Yes. Okay. So what I'm finding is um, I try to stay away from people because they really get on my nerves. <laughs> but when I do go out and <laughs> but when I do go out and I intermingle with them, I offer up uh, 
prayers of healing in whatever way they may need, especially with the bad drivers. Uh, uh, you know, because the most natural response is to just say, get out of my way. Uh, but I, and, and what I've been told is that I'm spending way too much time in my home and not getting out and trying to enjoy the different personalities of, of this wonderful universe. But it, for me, it's like baby steps because if I can't see the good in someone that is annoying me, then am I really reflecting on the principles of Buddhism? Does that make sense? I'm thinking about it. So, oh, okay. Your, your question, say your question again, will you? You're, you're muted again, Irma. But I was wondering if you could kind of say the question you had at the end again. So my question is, uh, because I am trying to practice the steps of Buddhism and trying to uh, see the beauty of others, I'm the more that I, uh, my question is, am I being too judgmental towards others? Which is why I may be just staying within my beautiful home rather than trying to go out and experience the beauty of others in person? Well, I think that's something that that you're going to have to discover through your practice. You know, when we sit and sit still in meditation over time, strengthening our awareness muscle and learning kind of how um, any inputs from our world reverberate through our psyche, right? With our own preferences and conditioning and judgments. That will teach you kind of your background karma and how you meet things. It's, it's like a colored lens, right? That we, we shade the world through. And it comes from our parents, our family of origin, our history, our trauma. Mm. So, but from my experience, yeah. <laughs> when you, when you need the way you describe it, it sounds like, um, you have a lot of judgments as we all do, not probably not any more than anyone else, but you're paying most of the attention to the judgment and maybe try mm -hmm. to use more of your attention to what's actually happening and not what you think about it. Okay, thanks. Thank you. That'll be another good experiment. <laughs> right, and then you can you can come back and curse me out next week. <laughs> and we have Mary. All right, this is probably the last question because it's 1045. But go ahead, Mary. 
Um, well, I just wanted to circle around and um, speak around anger too. And what, like when you were saying, some of what I experience is a preference to not feel angry. So my question is, is as you're talking about this and as I'm working with my anger is to not have a preference to not have it, but how do we experience the joy in the fact that there may just be this experience of anger arising? I hear what you're saying in terms of what you want to choose, how to respond, but oftentimes what I do with anger is I'm aversive to it. I exile it rather than create space for that. And my question would be how to just practice with that, just being kind towards the anger. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for speaking up because I think you're giving voice to one of the most common things that I hear around a Buddhist center. I mean, how many other, well, show of hands here. How many other people here have the curative fantasy that if they do this enough, they're not going to get angry and they're going to be able to rise above all the crap? <laughs> right? Yeah. We, yeah, we all want that. I want that. I think that drove my practice for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a motivation in a driving force. And it's a part of that directionality towards where we want to go, right? To liberate all beings from suffering, including ourselves. We don't want to live out of anger. So mm -hmm. there's, there's a healthy direction to it. We just can't jump over the steps. We just can't, once we notice that we are angry, we have no choice. We're angry. We have to accept yeah. it. We have to experience it. I recommend experiencing all of its physical manifestations and then all the stories you have about why you're angry and why you're right to be angry. Mm -hmm. Use it as an opportunity to learn your own karmic conditions and preferences so that you aren't fooled by it as quickly next time. And we have to figure out a way to do that without stuffing it, without saying, I just don't want to be angry anymore. Mm -hmm. the, way, the way beyond the anger is to experience it absolutely fully and don't deny it. And when you're done with that, choose where you put your energy in the next moment. Do you want to continue it? Do you want to spin with it? Do you want to continue keeping your blood pressure up? Or acting out of grandmotherly mind what do I want for this lovely person myself in this next moment? What do I wish for myself? If I've already decided to empty the litter box, wouldn't I wish for myself to feel some joy and peace in doing it? <laughs> we're not talking about that, we're just talking wishing at this point, okay? And there's a big difference between deciding to do or not do, but it is interesting how we already decide to do and then still fight, right? Yeah. I just wanted to make a, a brief comment that I think that what Blanche is describing, feeling joy, does not mean feeling good necessarily. I think it might mean having the psychic container to be able to meet all of these things without getting stuck or getting hooked or being able to choose a skillful response or slow ourselves down. 
So um, I make this distinction with people in my work all the time that um, working with your anger doesn't mean it becomes pleasant all of a sudden. It means that perhaps you're choosing a different response, not um, behaving as reactively as possible, and, and keeping provisional. Um, emptying kitty litter is not pleasant. I mean, I do that every day. But can I experience a sense of peace or acceptance um, as it is versus needing it to be something else? Does that make sense? Thank you. All right, I thank you for your participation in today's talk. And I have a few announcements to make before we move on, just because I forgot to do them at the beginning. Um, we have a lot of um, programs coming up in the new year at Alpamata to allow you to continue and deepen your practice. Um, the first is Joel will be offering our annual year-long slow study of the Buddhist precepts. The Apamata precepts program will be beginning in about two weeks time. They meet um, one weeknight a month for 12 months. And in the time in between each meeting, you are um, given instructions and training to discover how to work with the precepts in your daily life. And then we come back together as a small group and debrief and, and move on to the next precept. So um, it's a wonderful program that's very supportive in deepening and strengthening one's Buddhist practice. <clears throat> so that's coming up in two weeks and the registration is open. You can find more information on that online. <laughs> and then we're about to begin our spring practice period. So in the Buddha's time, there used to be during the monsoon season or raining season, kind of a 90 day practice period where the monks would shut down the monastery, close the gates to outside visitors and kind of contain themselves in a more dedicated practice session. We continue that by offering one or two practice periods a year here at Apamata, which is a roughly 90 day window to rededicate yourself in a particular practice. Hopefully, um, in consultation with whoever the teacher is you're working with, who can guide you through this. So in the next day or two, we'll be sending out an email and a registration form for those who want to participate in the practice period, asking you to register your intent what you wish to work on or how you are going to focus on deepening your practice during this time. And as part of that, we offer the opportunity to get buddied up with another Sangha member, usually an experienced Sangha member, who um, offers themselves as a practice period buddy, just to meet with maybe, you know, half an hour, an hour, every week or two or month, it's up to you, to just discuss how your practice is going. And many people report that these small connections and having a buddy to go through the process is very supportive. So bracketing both the beginning and end of the practice period, we offer practice intensives, uh, sometimes called sashins in Japanese, which is just a, um, uh, people used to try and call them retreats. Joko didn't like that. She said it's the opposite of retreat. It's the only place you can go where you can, you know, you can stop retreating from all the ways you retreat in your daily life and face everything.
So we will offer um, a practice period to mark the beginning of the, I'm sorry, we'll offer a practice intensive to mark the beginning of the practice period in January, starting on January 18th. That will be led by myself and Joel Barna. This will be a um, integrated practice intensive, which means um, during the middle of the day, the meat of the day, um, you are to be practicing in your everyday life. So we won't interrupt your schedule. We'll meet kind of before work school hours and meet again after work and school hours and send you off with instructions to meet your daily life in the real world in between. And that will finish up with an all day sitting on Saturday the 20th and a half day on Sunday. So it's a four day integrated practice intensive. And then finally, at the end of the practice period in April, both Peg and Flint will be in town and we'll be offering uh, a full intensive to mark the end of the practice period and the head student exiting ceremony, as well as a Jukai ceremony for those who've been sewing rocket suits. So that's a little bit of a look ahead of the next three or four months and, and some of the more um, non-standard, not weekly scheduled things, but other schedules that we'll be offering. Any questions about any of that? Yes, Joel. <laughs> looking for the mute button. Joel, can you raise your hand because I can't find you? Okay. Well, she meant hit the raise hand button because there's <laughs> too many. Now I can find Joel. <laughs> Still mute. Okay. I, I'm, st I, I'm finally unmuted. Thank you so much, and thank you, Nelly. Um, just to say that Peg is going to be giving a talk. Uh, it'll be the it'll be on the 29th of January, I believe. No, I'm saying that back backwards. So Peg is going to be in town the week after the um, after the practice uh, intensive, the integrated intensive. And she's going to give a talk on that Sunday morning. It's it's on the Appamata calendar, I believe, already. But um, it's, I think that's important that she's, that we know that she's coming in the month of January. Thank you, Joel. <clears throat> All right, Anna.